Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, a podcast by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Alex Gibney's new documentary, Citizen K. Photographed on location in the UK, Russia, and Germany, the documentary follows Mikhail Khodorkovsky, one of the richest men in Russia who became known as the world-famous dissident Citizen K when he was imprisoned after a series of theatrical trials orchestrated by Vladimir Putin. The film tracks Khodorkovsky's path from communist to oligarch to political prisoner to exiled dissident and examines the price of power in Russia. In addition to Citizen K, Mr. Gibney's filmography includes the documentary features We Still Secrets, The Story of WikiLeaks, Freakonomics, My Trip to Al-Qaeda, the DGA Award-nominated and Emmy Award-winning Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, and the DGA Award-nominated films Client 9, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer, and Taxi to the Dark Side. Citizen K was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Gibney spoke with director Matthew Heineman about filming Citizen K. Listen on for their conversation. Oof. Just a light comedy from Alex again for us here. Rom-com. Yeah. Um, I just sat through this and wrote down some questions, but I guess just start, Alex, by telling us, uh, how did you come to the story? Um, I was looking for, I mean, after 2016, um, when American Eyes turned to Russia, I was looking for something to do on the topic, and John Batsik and PJ Van Sandvik, two of the producers, um, uh, you know, tried to interest me in the Hodakovsky story. And I was interested, and I was interested because it seemed like an interesting, uh, you know, a, a good way to, to understand how power works in Russia through somebody who was at the very top and then at the very bottom and now working sort of in exile. So that, that story seemed a way forward. And also his, his life seemed to encapsulate the, the period of Russia that, you know, there's a lot of undertow and history having to do with Russia in the Cold War. I don't think we know that much about Russia in the kind of the post-Soviet period. So that was also a kind of interesting way in for me. And Hodakovsky seemed like a, a good story for that. And in terms of getting to him and gaining his trust, can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I met with him in a cafe just to talk about, you know, what this might be like. And, um, um, and, and told him that, you know, it would, it would take a, a bit of his time, as a lot more of his time, I think, that he had bargained for. I think we shot for um, a total of nine days, maybe f- four days before Russia, or you know, five days before Russia and four days after coming back. Um, for him, that was a lot of time. And, um, and it was, um, I think he was, he's not Oprah. Um, and he it, it doesn't come easily to talking about himself or or uh, his emotional journey, but there was a lot he wanted to say about Russia. So 
over time, we got to a, a zone where I felt, um, you know, we were, we were engaged. And, um, and he never, you know, he came into this knowing that he didn't have any control over the final result, which is not easy for a former oligarch. And also for, um, he never dodged any question. He may not have answered them in ways that were as um, thoroughgoing as I might have liked, but but he always engaged on everything. I was impressed by that. Did your perception of him change over the course of filming? I think it did. I mean, I you know, having read, you know, one of the first things I did before I sat down for sort of four days solid of interviews was to read a tremendous amount and also to talk to a lot of people. And I, I really... Um, dug in on the, this period of the 90s. Um, and he was a pretty ruthless character during that period. And I would say, you know, there was more, had I more time, there was more stuff in terms of how he amassed his fortune that, that, that doesn't look so good. I mean, it was just a Wild West period and people were pretty ruthless and he was one of the more ruthless ones. So I came at him from, a, from that kind of perspective. Uh, but over time, I, you know, the, I think the question that hangs over the film is, you know, did he really change in prison? Um, and, and I think he did. I mean, there's a line in the film, uh, I learned that life is not so much about having, it's about being. It's hard for me to imagine, just taking one example, if, Do you know, if Donald Trump were in prison for 10 years, that he would write something like that. I think one of the things you do, in, in all your films is, is you find these incredible characters and then you use them as a way to explore, you know, larger topics. In the edit room, was it hard finding a balance between those two things? And can you sort of talk through that process? The biggest challenge of this film was uh, in, the, in the cutting, both in terms of finding a balance between present and past and finding a style that was both... Um, that was able to jump back and forth between present and past, but also to weave Hodakovsky's story through elements of the larger story of Russia that I felt were important to tell. And it was, uh, you know, at our four-hour cut from which we didn't feel we could cut a frame, you know, to the, to its current to its current length. It was it was kind of brutal getting there because there was a there was a lot of story to tell. So, you know, the we were at it for over a year in the cutting room in terms of trying to get that balance right because too much history telling about Russia and not enough Hodakovsky and you lose the thread, too much Hodakovsky and you don't get this broader sense of context. And we also found interesting characters and we would follow uh, them where they took us. So this wonderful guy, Igor Malashenko, the guy who was the NTV executive who then ends up being, you know, Ksenia's subject campaign manager. I look for those characters to perform more than one function. Sadly, he recently committed suicide, another, you know, death in this rapidly growing body count of dissidents. But um, uh, it, it was people like that that we looked to, to be able to tell both the Hodakovsky story and the larger story. There's a lot of footage inside Russia in the film. Um, did you shoot that? And if so, how? Yep. We went to Russia for about three weeks. And we had a very small footprint, and it was fun. We used a Russian crew. We didn't. Um, I went there with my associate producer, uh, Ophelia Harutunian, 
and she speaks Russian. She's Armenian. She speaks Russian, and we had, um, and and the crew was entirely Russian. Very small crew, but very talented. The the DP was a guy who was um, formerly a still photographer, but very much of a daring do guy. He had, you know, been on Greenpeace boats when they were brushing up against the Russian fleet, and you know he knew just how to navigate the situation. So. For example, when we went, we spent some time in Moscow. This was in the winter. And so when we went to Neftugansk, that oil town, where that's where all those big shots of the flame are, you know, it was in the middle of winter. And some days it was 20 below. The good news about that was that we went out in our little car. Um, there wasn't a lot, there weren't a lot of officials guarding the oil fields. Mm. So, uh, you know, it was too cold. <laughs> so, yeah, and then we, we ranged broadly to Krasnokomensk, you know, where he had been in prison and elsewhere. Were you or are you worried uh, for your safety? Um, you know, we applied for visas to do what we did. Um, I'm assuming that we were followed. We, we brought with us burner phones and burner computers, which we all had wiped when we got back. They were suffused with malware. But I, I think that we played it straight, and yet we also were kind of under the radar at the same time. So, I, you know, I felt there was some risk, but it seemed, uh, you know, other crews had, had certainly shot there, and I think the decision to go with a local team was a good one. Um, I just have a couple more questions, and then I'll open up to the audience. I, I love how you shot his interview. Um, there's something that's sort of creepy about his eyeline, um, and I can't, I still am trying to understand what it was creepy about it. But Well, you? it's two angles. The A camera angle is dead on. It's, um, I use a thing, it's a kind of like the iDirect, but I use, I, I use something called the Tonytron in, in honor of Tony Rossi who built it. But it's just a wooden frame which has a mirror in it so that I sit off to the side and we mask myself with Duvetine. And then, so he looks at me, but he's looking into a pretty big um, device so that he's looking in the camera. And then the other camera is a side angle. And it was actually shot on green screen. And I shot it on green screen because I didn't know where he was going to be and how we were going to get him. I insisted, you know, he, 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 know, he knew where the jacket and the shirt were. Um, and then we looked for locations to match afterwards in terms of coming up with the backgrounds. In the the score, I loved it. it. Sort of oscillated between the sort of like Wild West thing going on, and then it had a obviously a thriller vibe and this sort of like Russian nostalgia music. Can you kind of talk through the the score? And the score was really fun to do. It was done by um, Ivor Guest and Robert Logan. Robert Logan is an Eastern European, um, and so he was the one who got kind of got the soul of that part of the. The territory and 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 they, you know, they had scored Taxi to the Dark Side for me and also Mea Maxima Culpa, um, but those were more sort of tonal films in, in terms of the score. This one was really kind of all out, and that's what we wanted. We kind of wanted pitched somewhere between a gangster film and a western. You know, um, I, I sort of at times we sort of thought about this film as Once Upon a Time in the East. Um, and, uh, and, and that's how I wanted the score to be. And, of course, there's some real Russian score there, too, that we used, and, and we wanted that music. To, but we wanted the music to play a very active role. 
And my last question that I'll open up is, is, you know, what do you hope to say with this film? You know, I think it's meant to, it's never easy to say, this is what I wanted to say, because you want people to experience a film and come out of it thinking more, rather than, oh, I got it, it's this. Um, but that said, you know, we're living in a time when um, authoritarian ideals are, are roaming the land and taking uh, root in a lot of countries. Um, and so this was a look at Russia, which is kind of exporting that model to some extent, and also some uncomfortable parallels between Russia and where we might be headed if we're not careful. Um, I'm sure there are questions right here. So the question was, uh, you know, how, there's four hours of the first co. Four hours. How do we get that? How do we get, how do we get to that that footage? I always wonder about that. You know, the the amount of work that goes into something like this, particularly in the cutting room with a magnificent assistant editor. We had two assistant editors who plowed through enormous amounts of uh, archival footage. You know, we were pulling stuff off the internet, that, that song, I Want to Marry Putin. Somebody was just trolling the internet, and we found that. You know, so there's a tremendous amount of material, and it was fun. I, I wish there were a way, um, without being sued, that we could put it up someplace, because it might be instructive for people. But of course, all that material we're getting in, we don't have the rights to use it, and all of that. Um, but it would be fun to think of, uh, of a good way to make a lot of that material available uh, you know, for people who wanted to see it, uh, that, that, that wanted to dig further. We haven't quite figured out a, a good way to do it yet. Right. Look, sorry, do I have any hope for Russia? I mean, you know, to some extent, you know, Russians will have to take care of Russia. So am I, I pessimistic? Yes. Am I hopeful? Yes. You know, one of the things that impressed me about going to Russia and and I don't consider myself a Russianist or a Russian expert. I think, you know, I went, I, I shot there for another film I did called Zero Days. I went there a long time ago when it was the Soviet Union. I took the Trans-Siberian Railway. Um, but the one thing that always impressed me about the place, and, and even more so this time, was the number of, you know, uh, smart um, savvy, tough, engaged Russians that I met. So there's got to be a way. And let's hope that the tide turns and things begin to shift. I, I, I can't say I have any easy answers for anybody. Just hope for the future. And, I, um, and, and really that Russia makes its own way. It was interesting. Somebody asked Tartakovsky in a Q&A session we were at, you know, what can we do? Uh, about changing Russia, and he had an interesting answer. He said, there's nothing you can do. It's up to us, which, considering a history of, of interventionism, might be a good point. Uh, back here. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I expected there to be more security around him. He has a view that if somebody from Russia is going to kill him, they're going to kill him, and it's not going to matter how much security he has. Um, that said, he doesn't take chances so much when his family's around. Suddenly then security people do appear. Um, but when we were walking around London and 
you know, I, I kind of scanned the horizon, and we were walking around getting into subways. You know, he has a little backpack that, you know, he's trucking with. I didn't notice any security, nor did he contact anybody. There's no, um, you know, earpieces. He just goes rogue. His family, was there talk about including his family in the film? There was. Ultimately, I decided not to. I mean, there, there are brief shots of them both in the past, that, that, that sort of barbecue scene inside his house where you can see his wife and, you know, a, a little glimpse of his daughter. Who was shooting that, by the way? Uh, that was shot a long time ago. Um, the, uh, that was, you know, shot in 2003, just before he went into prison. By, like, a crew that he hired? or No, not a crew that he Somebody was making it a documentary at the time. I mean, he was a pretty famous guy. Um, and um, so I think at the end of the day, he was reluctant to involve his family in it too much, and I kind of respected that, feeling that, you know, this was a film, not a, a pure portrait of Hodakovsky. And so, well, we touched on it from time to time, just to give a sense of the human dimension of the story, I decided not to engage with that so much. I think we probably have time for one or two more questions. Well, I mean, the whole relationship, I mean, obviously, uh, the whole relationship to television I found very instructive. Um, and the idea of trying to control television or at least uh, m manage an image and also that, that weird and eerie sequence where Putin suggests that the people responsible for the Skripal poisoning appear before RT on television and they, you know, rapaciously lie about... Um, uh, visiting the Salisbury Cathedral and how impressed they were by its spire. Um, and, and the way that's presented, which is, I, I think, magnificently described um, by the journalist in the film uh, from The Economist, is, 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 is right and, and feels very telling today, where you can tell a lie in plain sight. Everybody knows it's a lie, your followers don't seem to care. Other people get worked up and in a high dudgeon about the fact that it's a lie. And there's a wink and a nod, and you just move on. And that was scary. That was a scary parallel for me. By the way, just one note of wish I had been able to nail this when I was there, but um, it appears that um, through a group that's like uh, Bellingcat, um, Bellingcat is a group that uses data from uh, the web and stuff to, 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 to pin things down with kind of eerie efficiency. People discovered that when Putin does these kind of vox pop things throughout Russia, where he goes and gets an ice cream from somebody or uh, pats the postman on the back or says hello to a fireman, they did facial recognition software on those people and discovered there's about eight to 10 actors who actually travel with Putin, who are cleared for security, and then they just change costumes. I'm going to be the fireman this time. So uh, that, I, I wish I had been able to include that. Did, did, you find, before we ask them, did you find yourself in the edit room sort of pulling back on the on this sort of, I'm sure, instinct to want to draw constant parallels between Russia and, and here? I, I did. We did make a decision that we wouldn't mention the word Trump once. 
And I think that was important. I mean, it's, in some fundamental way, there were parallels, but this is also a story about Russia. So I think we wanted to tell that story, and we didn't, you know, there's a brief mention of the Mueller report in regards to Prigozhin, just to say, you know, to give a sense of that, but, but in, in a fundamental way, while there was temptation, even while asking Hodakovsky questions um, about the election and so forth, um, it was a temptation to go there, but we resisted that temptation. I think it was the right decision. By the way, Hodakovsky, I asked Hodakovsky about the election, and did his, what does his sources know about Putin and his attempts to interfere and, and advance knowledge? He said Putin had zero clue. That he was as shocked as anybody that Trump won. They might. I mean, you know, it's in terms of they wanting to take him out, it, it can get murky in Russia, and sometimes favors do get done, and I think we flicked at that. Um, whether or not a favor was done for Hodakovsky, you know, in the, mayor, in, the ma in, in the matter of the mayor, or whether favors were done for Putin uh, in the manner of Nev, uh, Nemtsov or um, Politovskaya, you know, that's a good question. And, and I think one of the interesting things about Russia is it's not a pure political dictatorship. It's, it's, a, it's a political leader surrounded by a lot of sort of oligarchs 2.0 who do favors for each other back and forth. And, and that's why I found it so poignant. When I, when I asked Tadokovsky that question about what's Putin's greatest nightmare, I asked the question kind of in a broad metaphorical way. It surprised me that Hodakovsky, of all people, would respond with something so concrete, the idea that the phones would all be turned off and he'd sense that the gangsters were coming for him because this guy was no longer useful to them. That, in a way, is one of the most poignant metaphors of the film, I think. How can our friends and our family see the film? Okay, so the film opens theatrically in L.A. later this month. Um, it'll be at the Film Forum early in January. And, um, and ultimately around the world on Amazon. And by the way, it did have a screening recently in Moscow, uh, a kind of private Haitian-only screening, but it was there, though I'm told by Hodakovsky that it is widely distributed in Russia, completely illegally. Where did they get the copy? Hard to know. <laughs> um, huge round of applause for Alex. Please. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As from directors Edward Norton and Melina Matsukas. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.